1: This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Mauricio Raoult. Thanks for being on the show, Mauricio.
0: Thanks for having me, Whitney. Really appreciate it.
1: Yes, I'm pleased to have you on the show and your expertise is so needed, right? In this business and perfect guest for the syndication show. But Mauricio is the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, an internationally recognized securities firm that spends 100% of their practice on syndication for real estate investors. Regularly travels around the country speaking to real estate investors and entrepreneurs, educating them about the syndication legal piece that fits into the overall syndication puzzle. He's known for taking complex matters and making them the easiest to understand. I really liked this about your bio. Is jokingly referred to as the one of the few lawyers who actually speaks English. He's been on the stage with Robert Kiyosaki, Kim McElroy, Peter Schiff, Brad Sumrock, and of course the real estate guys. He is well known in this industry, and thanks again for being on the show, and I'm looking forward to getting into it, Mauricio, and maybe give the listeners a little more about your background, and then we're going to jump into some big mistakes beginners make getting in the syndication business.
0: Yeah. I started my practice like every other attorney dreams of. I went to work for the pretty large securities firm uh, here in Long Beach, California, actually the largest securities firm in Long Beach. Did the litigation piece, so it was actually an interesting deal. I used to represent the JP Morgan's the world, the Merrill Lynch's, and all those guys, but I always got the stuff once the you-know-what hit the fan, right? I'd get the complaints. I'd have to answer it. I'd go through depositions, interrogatories, all that court appearances, you know, motions, all that stuff. And even though it was a great firm, I just felt like something was off. And I finally got around to reading that little purple book, which I'm sure everybody's read, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that really resonated with me. And obviously, and you know, I didn't want to continue working at the firm till I was 65 and dead. I actually went to work for. Robert and Russ from the Real Estate Guys as their in-house counsel. And that's kind of where I started really doing syndications. This was probably 15, 17 years ago, and still Robert's my personal client. I've been doing this for 15, 16 years. And about, I don't know, six years ago, I just decided to drop everything else and just focus 100% on syndication, which I think is important because a lot of lawyers, especially the local ones, they're securities attorneys. That's a pretty big field. Maybe their syndication practice is 25%. And They don't really have a grasp of all the rules. But if you talk to a syndication, I'm not the only one, obviously. There's others that do 90, 100% of the syndication. That's really who you want to be talking to because they don't have to go research anything. They know and they're updated on the latest updates on the law.
1: That makes sense to me. I mean, you're in it day in, day out. So many people in the industry, you're looking at so many different structures and types of deals. And you're going to be so knowledgeable just doing this every day. I wanted us to discuss just some of the biggest mistakes syndicators make. They come into this industry. There's many things we need to know before we just think we're going to be a syndicator, right? Just get us started in that. And then obviously I'll have some questions as we go.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest issue is obviously newbies or first time syndicators don't know what they don't know. And I think the biggest mistake is that they think that the way they're putting their deal together somehow gets them around the securities laws and they'll make up stories in their head or maybe they've been told by other people that, oh, no, no, that's not a security. And so they try and structure things uniquely, like they'll set up like a profit share agreement. or Actually, my favorite is a TIC agreement. They're like, oh, wait, we're all direct owners in the property. This is not a syndication and nothing could be further from the truth. According to the SEC, the definition of a security, which is really why we're involved in securities laws, you're issuing a security, it's super broad and it includes obviously the stocks, the bonds, the mutual funds that you typically think of, LLCs, notes, obviously, but it also includes TIC agreements, profit sharing agreements, side contracts, handshakes, high fives, whatever. It doesn't matter the structure of your syndication. What matters is, and this is kind of my cheat sheet, anytime you take money from an individual where the return is generated by your efforts, you are dealing with a security. In other words, if they're passive, they're giving you a check, and then they're going home and sitting on the couch, you are dealing with the security, whether you, no matter how you structure it. And so I think that's probably the missing link with newbies, because once you're dealing with the security, of course, now there's really three things we need to worry about, which we'll get to in a second. I think that's the number one mistake with new syndicators.
1: I think some people will say, well, you said generated by your efforts. So by my efforts, what if this person is doing something in the business? Or what does that look like? What do they need to do for that to qualify?
0: It's really primarily your efforts, right? So yeah, one of the ways that you can kind of get around, I don't want to say get around the security as well, it seems like you're doing something nefarious or something, but where it would not be considered security is if it's you and maybe a couple other friends or buddies and you're all kind of entering a joint venture agreement, everybody's doing some sort of involved in the deal, maybe a third each would be ideal if you contributed kind of an equal amount of money. In those scenarios, you're not really issuing a security. You're really starting a business. You, me, and somebody else gets together and we start a business. It's not a security. Now you got to be careful with that because the SEC has come out and said, look, once you get to about five people, we're not really going to be trusting that all five people are going to be able to be doing something. Some people, I actually got a client, a potential client who came in and had like 20 people and they all wanted to be active. And I'm like, that's going to be a really hard sell, if not impossible sell to the SEC because There's going to be at least one person that ends up doing very little work, and that's going to trigger security for at least that one person. So there are ways, quote, around it, but it has to do with really treating it as a business and we're starting a business as opposed to accepting money. And of course, if you're doing that, you're not taking any sponsor fees or any asset management fees, because why would you? You're just starting a business. Mm, That makes sense. We'll move on. Yeah. I always say whenever you're dealing with the security, there's only really three things that I think about. Number one, you need to register that security or that syndication with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or we need to find an exemption to registration, or it's illegal. I mean, it's really that simple. You got to register, you got to find an exemption, otherwise it's illegal. And you go through that analysis for every single transaction whenever you're selling a security. Obviously, I'm going to assume that not everybody wants to do an illegal offering. Uh, Hopefully there's no Bernie Madoffs out there who are looking to commit fraud and all that stuff. But you do have to be a little bit careful. I mean, illegal does also translate into misrepresentations, maybe not intentional, but you misrepresent or you fail to disclose or you don't provide the proper documentations when you are required to. So it's not just fraud and stuff. And so that's one of the things you got to be careful about. But you really don't want to do a registering your security, a full registration, because it takes about one or two years to get that through the process. And it takes six to seven figures so look, if you're in a contract to buy a building, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you have one to two years to wait around for the SEC to approve your deal? You just don't have that time. So most people in my world exclusively run into the exemption pie. So we're always looking for an exemption to registration. And fortunately, there are a couple that are 95% of the people use that will be able to fit into one of these depending on the client's needs.
1: What's an example of someone that would need to register? We won't spend much time on it, but who would that be?
0: It's somebody who's doing a large offering that wants to be able to go advertise into every single state and take non-accredited investors and kind of go through that whole rigor and, and take small investments. I had a client actually who did that. It's an oil and gas company. They were raising, I forget the amount, probably like 50 or hundred million dollars. But number one, they had to go hire an attorney in every single state. That's one of the issues that you've got to deal with federal securities laws, but sometimes you've got to deal with states. So you may have to hire a state securities lawyer. So it's just time consuming anytime you're dealing with the government, it's time consuming. They're not known for being the fastest turnaround people. So that's why we try and avoid it just time consuming. And these guys spent a million dollars in getting that offering through because for them, it was worth it. They're raising a hundred million dollars and they're going to do all these great things. But for most of us, there's probably another exemption now that didn't exist back then. I'd probably steer them towards one of these newer exemptions that probably makes more sense now. So luckily there's really two exemptions that 95% of the people use and you've probably heard these if you're a syndicator obviously and um, these are the famous reg D or regulation D exemptions and up until 2013 September I think 21st 2013 there really was only one this is as technical as I'm going to get but rule 506b is kind of the old exemption which used to be just called the 506 and the reason this is really popular is twofold one it's a safe harbor which means if we hit all the points in this rule and we follow the rules, we're guaranteed to be sure that we're following the exemption and the rules. And the other big deal is it preempts state law. And that's just a fancy way of saying we don't have to worry about the states most of the time. So we don't have to go hire an attorney in every single state that you're selling into and pay them to do the work. The federal statute overrules it, except for these. there's still anti-fraud provisions. The states, I always joke, they're kind of they've been stricter their power so much that so they're kind of just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. But if they get a fraud case or an alleged fraud case, they're going to jump all over it because that's the only jurisdiction they have left. But that's why Reg D is so popular. And then, of course, you can raise an unlimited amount of money, which is why even the big boys, the Goldman Sachs and the Merrill and they'll raise a billion dollars and use a 506B because they have relationships with all their investors. And again, it's unlimited money, so why not? The nice thing about 506B is that you can take, obviously, an unlimited amount of accredited investors. And you can take up to 35 non-accredited investors so long as they're sophisticated. And just as a reminder, an accredited investor is someone who either has a net worth of a million dollars, excluding their primary residence, or if they're an individual that they've earned $200,000 the last two years with a reasonable expectation of earning that much this year. So unlimited amount of money, 35 non-accredited. The bad news is, or the limitation back then, was that you could not advertise or solicit. So you could not go to a conference, for example, and pass out your business plan. You cannot do Facebook ads, you cannot do anything on your website. You just had limitations. You could not put together a webinar with the excuse of them pitching your deal. So there's a lots of limitations there.
1: Can I just ask you a yeah. question about that? Yeah. Numerous questions that people ask about that topic right there. Obviously, is it soliciting and, and I'll just get on this and we'll move on. Yeah. This could be a whole show in itself, but Absolutely So as far as advertising. If I see ads on Facebook all the time, contact me to get on my investor list. It says, we're doing big things this year, closing many deals. Contact me so you can see our next investment. Or, And I struggle with that. I've never posted yeah. anything like that. Obviously, I know you can't just put a property on there and say, hey, who wants to invest? Yeah, They're not showing a property, but they're just saying, contact me so you can get on our investor list. What are your thoughts about something like that?
0: Yeah, you obviously cannot... Do an offering. So, if you've got a project, you can obviously post your offering. But where again newbies get caught up is you also can't what's called condition the market, which is another type of offer. So, even if you don't have a deal, if you start talking about your past results and how great the ROI has been, or that hey, I project on all my deals 20% IRR or whatever, that's going to be considered conditioning the market. If you're just talking about your business as a whole and you're an investor and look, this is what we do for a living and I'd be happy to help you out, please contact us. That's fine, but now you've got to separate them from the rest of your list. You're going to have to have some mechanism to separate them because you're not ready to be able to send them a 506B offering. There's a bunch of steps. There's about six or seven steps that you need to follow in order to go from somebody you have never met before or don't know to somebody that you have a substantive relationship with, which is the easiest way to get around the advertising laws. So once you pe- go through these six or seven things like getting on a phone call with them for 15 or 20 minutes, giving them a questionnaire that kind of gets to know them pretty well. Then at that point, you can offer them a future deal because not only do you have to have a substantive relationship, it has to be pre-existing your deal. So you couldn't offer them a, your current one, but at that point you can do the rest. And I actually literally, we were talking about doing some videos yesterday. I just did a video on this and I'm not sure when it'll be out, but if your listeners want to contact me, I'm happy to give that out. And I can also hand them, I can send over the list of seven things that you go to. But the main ones are the phone call and the really detailed questionnaire. That's not just hey, what's your net worth and are you accredited? It's when you sign up for a brokerage account and an options or margin and all those questions they ask you, you know, your experience, how long yes. you've been doing it, all that stuff would be in that questionnaire.
1: Yeah, kind of like a risk assessment also. What
0: Yeah, you're trying to find out what their level of sophistication is really and whether it's suitable for their for where they are.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you elaborating on that. And maybe we'll cover that another time more in depth. But yeah. but we'll keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think the only thing we're missing there is there are some bad actor provisions now that they added. So if you, or, which is really important when you have a co-sponsor, obviously you know that you haven't been convicted of securities frauds or haven't been sanctioned by a state. And there's about 11 scenarios that will make you a bad actor. But how well do you know your partner? So you want to do a little bit of research at the minimum, go through Google or whatever, and maybe hire an investigator. That's kind of maybe a little extreme, but just make sure that they don't have any of these things. And I have a bad actor questionnaire that I insist that all my clients and their partners, co-sponsors, signed. So at least you have something in your file that they're representing that they haven't done some of these bad acts. Because if they've done the bad act before the rule passed, which is September 2013, then you need to disclose that. If it happened after 2013, you're actually barred from issuing the security. So if you suddenly have a co-sponsor who's got a bad act, you better drop them because you'd be doing an illegal offering.
1: Wow. Any examples of what makes you a bad act And what would cause that to come into effect?
0: Yeah, but most of them have to do with violating securities laws. Obviously, you know, you've been sanctioned by the SEC or sometimes the state sends you a C-synthesis letter. They're kind of the normal things you would think about basically being sanctioned. And that's probably something that would show up on a Google search. The last one, which I still haven't memorized, it's something to do with like the, almost like postal fraud, post office thing, which has nothing to do with anything. But again, I can send you that listed. Awesome. And then the last thing with all Reg Ds, you have to file what's called a Form D with the sec which is just a notice filing it's not a registration it's just letting the sec know hey this is what we did we raised a million bucks this that the other and then you've got to file a copy of that form d in every state that you have sold into so that's something that we do take care of all that stuff for you but they're called the blue sky filings uh, that's really the only requirement for the states in my opinion what they really want is, is their fee you know they charge anywhere from a couple hundred bucks to 500 bucks in texas and california and call me if you have somebody from new york cuz it may not be worth taking a 50,000 or 100,000 investment compliance cost in new york is ridiculous.
1: Wow, no, that's good to know. So, yeah, I was going to say so you said you have to file that form in every state you've sold into. So that pretty much means any state that you have an investor that lives in.
0: Yep, you're going to have a list of all your investors that you've sold to and then within 15 days of that sale. So 15 deals from the first sale period, you've got to file that form with the SEC there's actually no penalty, obviously, if you file that SEC form late. So as long as you file it before what hits the fan, there's no late filing fee that it's not going to blow your exemption. Then when you sell into a state, you have 15 days from the first sale into that state to file a copy of the Form D. The states do have late fees. And some states like Wisconsin will actually claim that you may have blown your exemption because you failed to file a Form D, which is utter nonsense. Not true, but they'll take that position. So a little bit more consequences if you blow the states, but it's just a form. It's really not a big deal. In 2012, you remember the JOBS Act that President Obama and the Congress passed, that included these new rules. And the idea was, let's open up the capital markets. we just come out of a recession. We're trying to liberate capital formation. So they came up with this new 506C, which was exciting at the time because it basically lifted the restrictions on advertising. So all those questions you asked me about advertising, that's all fair game now. You wanted to. Hire the Goodyear blimp and put your ad in the Goodyear or take out a Super Bowl ad or Facebook marketing or webinars, whatever, it's all fair game under 506C. The only limitations really are number one, you can only accept accredited investors. So you obviously can't take the 35 non accredited. And you must take what's called reasonable steps to verify that they are, in fact, accredited. Under 506B, we send them a questionnaire, they check the box and they tell me you're accredited or not, and I can rely on that under 506C, you cannot. You've got to really dig into their financials, look at their tax returns, W-2s, several ways to do it. I personally recommend if you're doing a 506C to outsource that. There are many third-party verification companies. The easiest way to verify is actually through a CPA verification letter that obviously your CPA is knowledgeable about your finances, so they can actually verify. So can an attorney and also a broker dealer. That's probably the easiest thing. So I really what I should say is, Try and get as many verifications through the CPA letter, and if for whatever reason they can't get it that way, then farm it out to a third-party verification company. They'll do all the dirty work. You'll not see any of the financials. They'll just give you a deliverable that says these guys are accredited.
1: A question. So going back to five hundred six b, but about this topic, yeah, not having to verify. Obviously, you know, investors are signing saying that they're accredited, but yeah, I don't. You know, I want to say, what if, what if it comes back that say you took thirty non-accredited, and then all of a sudden there's, A, you thought were accredited, that are not. So now you're over that 35, or I don't know, how would the SEC find out? When would that come up? And should we do something to safeguard against that, even though we don't have to?
0: Yeah, great question. First of all, it's going to come up probably with the states. The SEC is not going to, See, doesn't really care about your million dollar, two million dollar puny raise or $10 million raise. They're going after Bernie Madoff and pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes. And so They're probably not going to get involved. I did do a cryptocurrency fund a couple months ago, and I think that's a red flag. So we went through kind of a preliminary audit. As long as you have all the docs in line, my experience has been they're looking for low-hanging fruit anyway. So if you send them, you know, 150 pages of disclosure documents, they're going to be like, okay, these guys have their T's crossed and I's dotted. If you send them over a two-page business plan and articles of organization, they're going to be salivating because that's when they really can go after you. You can rely on that 506B if they check the box and say they are accredited, you can rely on that in your file. So the protection is having that questionnaire in your file so that if you ever get an audit in the state, you just present the questionnaire. The only time in theory, and probably in practice, is if you know for a fact that they're not accredited. If you know you're a good buddy or it's a homeless person or whatever, and you know there's no way this person's accredited, I know them well, then that could get you into trouble. Otherwise, if you don't know, you can rely on that questionnaire, which is why it's so important to have that in your file. So you can Send it over to the SEC or the states once they open up an audit.
1: And you mean the questionnaire, like when you're getting to know them, the seven things.
0: So this is a different questionnaire that's part of the offering package. So the offering documentations are we do a PPM, a private place memorandum, there's an operating agreement that we draft and create for the LLC, the syndication LLC, there's an investor questionnaire, which is what I'm talking about. There's a subscription agreement, and then there's your business plan. So that questionnaire is simply pretty simple. It's like, are you accredited? check the box. Are you not accredited? Check the box. If you're not accredited, we do a little bit of follow-up just to find out what their net worth is and what their income is. If you're talking to a non-accredited whose life savings are 50 grand, you don't want to take 50 grand from them, right? There's no legal limit. I would probably encourage people not to take more than maybe 25, 30% of an investor's net worth or income. But certainly if you're dealing with a little old lady who has hundred grand in retirement money, you don't want to take 50 or 60 grand from that person. That's the question I'm talking about, separate from the one that you're trying to qualify or get to know them to create that substantive relationship.
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad we clarified that because I knew they signed it then and they're obviously they're investing in a deal, but I wasn't sure which questionnaire you were talking about.
0: Yeah. So it's really two separate ones. If you're capturing people through the advertising, it preempts state law, which is huge. Again, we don't have to worry about the state. You still have to file a form B, you know, bad actor provisions. Everything else is the same. It's primarily the advertising and then limited to accredited investors. That's the main thing. Now, When it came out, we were like, hey, the world's your oyster. You can do, you've opened up to the world. It's going to be easy. But the reality is, I think it's 92% of the reg D filings are 506B and only about 8% of 506Cs. And I think the reason is that verification process. If your investor is pretty sophisticated and is looking at, say, 10 deals or five deals, and one of them requires verification and financials and the other nine don't, all else feeling equal, they're probably going to go with one of the ones that don't require that. They don't want to be handing over tax returns and things. So I think that's the reason it's not there. But I think it's a great exemption. And once you run out of your friends, family, and foes, then you got to get your capital from somewhere. And the reality is there's unlimited capital if you can advertise.
1: So what would you say is really the hardest part of the syndication process as far as the legal standpoint?
0: I always tell people, look, the legal piece is just one piece in the overall syndication puzzle, right? Mm. So my job is to make it as easy as possible for you to really not worry about the legal piece. I mean, yes, we'll be talking a lot, especially on the front end. I mean, I underwrite every single deal. I have a thousand questions. I have a thousand comments. We'll get on the phone, work on the business plan with you. We'll do draft number two, three, four, five until it's done. You make it so that it's really the lawyer that takes that burden of you. The hardest part, I think, is what you referred earlier, which is the gray area of advertising. Like, Can I do this? Can I do that? As I always say, I like to ask better questions. You get better answers. So how can we do this or how can we do that is probably a better question. It'll open up your mind. That's probably the danger because I have clients who still are on Facebook. and I mean, if it's public, forget it, right? It's advertising. If it's private, they're still, in my opinion, crossing the line and potentially blowing their exemption. So you're doing a five- Because remember, once you do a 506B, the minute you advertise, that's when you've blown your exemption. So now you'd have to go to a 506C. And if you've already accepted some non-accredited, you basically have to kick them out or start a new offering.
1: What's a way that you would recommend someone could improve their business right now, specifically, obviously, in the syndication business, maybe that you've seen that's a common thing people mess up on or some way that they should improve?
0: In the syndication business, it's all about relationships, right? It's all about investors. And so I would encourage, even if you're starting off, or even if you're a pro, and the pros probably know this, you shouldn't be waiting for a deal to be ready to go before talking to your list. I mean, constantly be in communication with your list, add value to your list, educate them about the market, educate them about the asset class, so that when you do have a deal, it's not the first time they've heard from you in two years that you've been consistently adding value, and then boom, here's a business plan and an invitation to a webinar. I think the webinar concept is really great. Instead of just sending out a business plan and saying, call me, do a webinar presentation, and you can either send the business plan after or before, at least for beginners. I think most seasoned syndicators kind of get that.
1: What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success?
0: Adding value and relationships. I mean, I believe in relationships for life. And the more I add value, the more it just reciprocates and people appreciate that and people will call me and fortunate to have a pretty robust syndication business here and it's just i think all because of the value add and the relationships that I've created with not only the investors but what i call the gatekeepers like yourself or the real estate guys or all the guys that are out there doing it so it's a relationship business i think i'm pretty good at that
1: is there a need in your business right now that you'd like to put out to the listeners
0: i think there's always need for education robert kiyosaki is obviously you know talks about financial education but obviously on the syndication i mean i just had a call today with the prospective clients and they were putting together their own PPM. This is not a do-it-yourself business. So just being educated, that's probably the number one need and just understanding what you can and cannot do. And hopefully you're talking to your legal counsel early in the process and not when everything's already been sent out and everything's too late.
1: Before we have to go, tell us how you like to give back.
0: I'm constantly doing videos. I'm constantly doing articles. In fact, I've got my current one, which is it's like expire, but you know, at some point I'll have this new, I'm working on an article on Opportunity Zones, which may be a topic for another show. But I do have my latest blog: eight critical steps to practicing safe syndication. And if somebody wants to get a copy of that, they can just email my team. It's team T E A M at premierlawgroup.net. And if you want any of the questionnaires and everything we've talked about on the show, reach out to me, and I'll get that info to you guys.
1: That's awesome. That's a big value add right there. I appreciate that. And you want to tell the listeners any more about how to get in a hold of you, or maybe how to get to see your website, or?
0: You Google me, you'll find me. But my website's premierlawgroup.net. Otherwise, team at premierlawgroup.net will get to you. But honestly, you can probably Google me and it's hard to miss me. You've
1: been a great guest, Mauricio. Thank you so much for your time. I can't thank you enough for the value you've added to me and the listeners. And I appreciate the listeners being with us today. And I hope you'll go to LifeBridge Capital and connect with me and also go to our Facebook group, The Real Estate Syndication Show, so we can all learn from experts and grow our businesses together. And we will talk to each of you tomorrow.